Welcome back to Detroit Strange. The podcast you're listening to. With your ear holes. Two of them. Yes. Hopefully. Yeah. That's Jess over there. And that's Alex over there. We get it, we do the introductions like every third time, I feel like. I think it's fine. We've been doing though. better about it lately. Keeps it keeps us fresh. Yeah, keeps you on your toes. Oh, I Are was they thinking a, about us. Oh. <laughs> keeps everyone on their toes. Yes, including us. Yes. Something like that. Well, I'm always on my toes because I'm a little light in the loafers. <laughs> You're also very tall. That's true, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very heavy on my toes. I mm-hmm. can be. I like sometimes, like, sometimes when I'm walking, if I'm not wearing like, like, especially if it's just like a like cheap flip flop, I'm just like, like, sorry, I don't know why I felt like I just slap <laughs> on the okay. T- That's okay. We can bring it down. Um, I'm just like clomp. Actually, though, sometimes it matters on the scenario. If I'm like in an old house or something and I'm aware of like what my footsteps sound like, I feel like I do tend to walk like lighter because I'm like, ooh, I don't uh, want to disturb anybody. I feel like when I like at home alone, naturally, I just walk on the balls of my feet for some reason. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. But like, I feel like if in the most natural state of me walking, it's on the balls of my feet. I guess I kind of do the same thing thing if there's like a hole underneath me like a basement or something or a floor i think yeah i tend to do that uh-huh. now i'm like how do i walk <laughs> how does one walk uh yeah we now i'm gonna be thinking questions. about it yeah. yes oh i know everyone now is like how do i walk <laughs> it's like when someone's like how do you breathe and you can't because you now you're thinking about it and you're like Mm-hmm. Is this how I breathe or am I? Th- yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how I was breathing earlier, but that's because I was doing a meditation. <laughs> that's that's which, what you're supposed yeah, to. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> Good. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I do have an update. Yes. So we heard from our wis- our listener. Our listener. <laughs> um, our listener, Wendy. and Friend of the show. Friend of the show. And she actually left us a message that she had in our hundredth episode. We talked about uh, the elevator. Yes, the Masonic. At the Masonic, yeah. And she actually had weird things happen in that elevator too during a theater bazaar when she was basically helping with like the setup and things like that. And so she was there extra and spooky, spooky. Yeah, corroborated, so, corroborated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I love when people write in. I do too. I love yeah. hearing stories and accounts and things like that right so exciting yeah who doesn't love getting mail right of any kind speaking of our 100th episode Mm -hmm. i'm so happy it's out i'm so happy people are listening to it all the feedback i've gotten from it is so positive everyone's like it's such a fun episode so i'm really happy that it's out and people can listen to it now yeah i'm super i i'm still kind of like in shock that yeah. not that I didn't expect us to make it to episode 100, but there's something about passing that and just being it like, just, Oh, it's, su- it's like, you don't think about it, but it is such a milestone. We've been doing this for over two years now. That's what that means. A hundred episodes is a little over two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we started recording at least I posted a picture of like the drinks from our first episode on our story recently. Mm-hmm. And it was from like April of 2019. Yeah. We were recording like, Months before we released oh, yeah. into Ju- in July. Yeah, because we had our first six episodes. Yeah. So that we launched on the Planet Night Incubator. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, I mean, we've taken a few breaks here and there, but I think we've been pretty yeah. pretty good pretty about it. Pretty consistent. Not, yeah. We've been tr- yeah. We do our best. Yeah. It's 
fun. Yeah. <laughs> I still like doing it. Yeah. I'm so glad we're doing this. Me too. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And I think also too, obviously like things develop and change and, you know, we're open to like developing, changing with new ideas and things like that. And we've got some, I think kind of fun stuff coming up. I know we've talked about maybe a few more guests because we had so much fun with Karen. Yes. And I had some, like, I don't know if we can talk about that air, but I had some fun ideas for bonus content that we're going to get, we're going to do soon. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We both got some trips coming up and then after that, we're going to yeah get started in the bonus content. Yeah. Can I talk about it or no? The bonus content? Yeah. Let's not just yet. Okay. Only we'll because we've talked about things and then not done them at all. And I think we will do this, but I think if we talk we about it, we might not. field trip? Every field trip? I feel like maybe we've got on one. We but went to the... Um, we went to the Whitney together. The Whitney, and also we went to... Um, Masonic? No, Asylum. Eloise. Yes, Eloise. yes, we did do that. If you want to see that happen, subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. If you want to hear us talking in the... Because that was crazy. The Asylum was a lot of fun. Ooky spooky. Why? Oh, I don't know. We're plugging our own Patreon. It's fine. Join it if you want to see more content from us. Yeah. We need the motivation. Yeah. It's just uh, just go to Patreon, look up Detroit Strange. Pretty yes. straightforward. Yeah. Join us. We got on some our, fun stuff. We have a lot of fun ideas. Mm-hmm. Help motivate us to make them happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I'm so excited about yeah. the bonus and content we changed, idea. We changed our levels on there too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's only three of them now. They're pretty straightforward. Yeah. And there's cool stuff up for grabs. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we like to interact with people and we want to see the people. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we might have some other fun stuff coming up, too. Yeah. So stay tuned. We've been chatting. Yeah. Chatting a little. Chatting, lunching sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. My people talk to her people, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just us. We don't have people. Yeah. I'm I'm my people and you're your people. Yeah. We're also each other's people. Oh, for sure. So it's a whole whole thing. Right. But you made us a delicious drink today, which, like, when you said beer cocktail, I wasn't sure, but I'm here for it. That lemon just makes it so fresh. Yeah, it is. Well, it's basically essentially like a shandy, except for it's a ginger shandy. So there's some ginger simple syrup, some fresh lemon juice, and then it called for a beer, which there was a different type of beer I wanted to get, which I'll... Hams? No, not hams, but close enough. Um, (laughs) But the store didn't have it, so I ended up actually going with Brew Detroit's, and I've got the name right here because it's a funny name for a beer. Yumtown. Yumtown. Which is a an easy drinking lager base addition of tart Michigan cherries and key lime add a pleasant sweetness to this perfect summertime brew, according to untapped.com, a beer website. Yeah, cute uh, can too. But it actually it turned out it's kind of perfect it's from Brew Detroit because they will actually have a small showing in today's story. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So I guess without further ado. Yeah, now I need to know. Would you like to hear a story? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of a thing called Stroh's? I have. I have heard of Stroh's. So that is the beer that I was trying to get Uh, and the store did not have. Uh, That's way better than hams, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But but you know what? We're going to start out by watching a commercial. Okay. (laughs) Because... There's some really good old commercials for Stroh's. We're just going to watch one. So come join me over here because I don't know how to turn my computer around with all the cords in it. And there she goes. I'd sure like another Stroh's. Oh, wait. Alex? Two cold Stroh's. 
Where do you see this? Just open the refrigerator. The dog's name is Just your open name. One bottle. That works because I'm almost had Just open the other. Now he's pouring yours. Now he's pouring mine. Alex, you better be drinking your water. <laughs> From one beer lover to another strolls. So that commercial featured a bunch of dudes playing poker, and then the trained dog was sent to go get two fresh cold strows for two of them. But then he drank it. That's so funny. Um, a little salty. The dog's name is Alex, though. <laughs> Who needs a dog, Alex? That's why I had to show. And actually, I think there was a whole. I saw another one with Alex the dog in it too, and the same guy. So I think there was like a whole series series of Alex okay. the dog featured. At least he wasn't a one off. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't help myself but include it. I thought it was a good way to start. Yeah. So now we're going to go a little bit into the history. Um, the Stroh family actually began brewing beer in a family-owned inn during the 18th century in Kiern, Germany, K-I-R-N. Okay. And by 1849, there was, for obvious reasons, a German revolution. And Bernard Stroh immigrated to the U.S. with only $150 to his name. So Bernard started his Detroit brewery in 1850 when he was 28 years old. And he started producing his well-known Bohemian-style Pilsner that had been developed at a municipal brewery in Pilsen, Bohemia in 1842. Was Bohemia actually a country? Bohemia was. I'm Bohemian. I did not know that. Yeah, Bohemia was a real country, kind of where, like, Czech Republic is. Okay. Kind of areas. All right. Eastern Europe. Yeah. Like, barely Eastern Europe. I always thought Bohemian was just kind of like a throw-around word of, like... (laughs) There's two different types. So okay. there was, um, and there's actually, there was like big wars and stuff like that too. But uh, Bohemia was a country. I don't know exactly the full history of it or like when it actually. This is not a Bohemia podcast so far. No. Uh, but it is like one of the few nationalities that I know. I you know. are. Yeah. That's fun. And I've only met one other person. And growing up, <laughs> and I would say that and people were like, we know you're a hippie. And I'm like, no, no, it was a real. It was a place. It was a real country. I promise you, it was a real country. Um, but yeah, so it was a real place. But it also, I think because a lot of, I think because there was a lot of, um, it kind of had like a Roma type culture to it. Yeah. So there was like a lot of um, movement within yeah. it. And I think that might be how Bohemian, like we think of like, that makes Bohemian sense. Kind of yeah. I think, I'm not sure, but there's something. Uh, so, in anyway, in 1865, he bought more land near Gratiot for production. And he also added a lion emblem from Kern's most famous landmark, the Kierberg, Kierberg Castle, and called it the Lion's Head Brewery at that time. That's a fun name. Yeah. And if you look at, like, the the older Stroh's logos and stuff like that, they have that lion emblem oh, in them. They got rid... Well, we'll talk about when they get rid of it. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, so it is, like, the classic Stroh's logo will have that as well. Love it. So in the early days, the beer was sold door to door via wheelbarrows. Oh my god, I love it! Mm-hmm. Although we are, I said wheelbarrows, I meant wheelbarrows. Okay, because I always say that wrong, uh, and I just one. learned that it was barrow. Yeah, in the past few years, uh, and operations would upgrade to using copper kettles for the process as well at that time. Okay, so eventually Bernard Stroh Jr. took over after his father's death, and he changed it to B Stroh Brewing Company. Bistro. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of hard to say it for some reason. Well, no, because you think bistro. Yeah, bistro. I could it's use really a little like, emphasize that like period. Bistro. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and with this, he would introduce things like pasteurization, refrigerated rail cars, and started to ship beer as far as Florida and Massachusetts. Nice. Yeah. So very different from going around with a wheelbarrow. Yeah. In 1893, the beer would go on to win a blue ribbon at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Fun. And by 1902, the company's name would once again change to the Stroh Brewery Company. Okay. Getting rid of the B. Fair. Yeah. Get rid of that B. Yeah. So in 1908, Bernard Jr.'s brother, Julius, took over. He had gone on a tour of famous European breweries. And he introduced the European fire brewing method to the process. Oh. Basically, this consists of using direct flame rather than steam to heat the copper kettles, get them a little bit hotter. Uh And the claim is that it brings out more of the beer's flavor. Okay. I'll buy it. Mm -hmm. During Prohibition, Julius decided to switch operations, though, rather than closing down. A lot of breweries just closed down. Yeah. And the company began to produce things like, quote unquote, near beer. Uh, which is beer where they literally just extract the alcohol after the process. Birch beer. So brewed from bark, essentially. Okay. Soft drinks, malt syrup products, which people could put on ice cream. And yeah, I was going to say, doesn't, don't they make, I was going to say, there's yeah. Stroh's ice cream, isn't there? And this is when Stroh's ice cream was first created. Dope. And then also ice. Because interesting, might as well. Right. Because people didn't have like freezers in their house at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they were box. already making ice cream. So yeah. like they, pro- yeah. Things were cold. Yeah. So when Prohibition ended, though, in 1933, most of those items were dropped, with the exception of... The ice cream. The ice cream. And they actually created a, a new special division just to create the ice cream to kind of, you know, give Separate, it some yeah. space. Yeah. And the operation would remain in Detroit until February... I'm sorry. The d- ice cream operation would remain in Detroit until February of 2007 when it was sold, when it was moved to Illinois. Is it still the Stroh's name or are they just gone? Stroh's ice cream still exists. I think I say this later, but it belongs to Dean Foods now. Mm, yeah. I'm not sure fun. if that happened when it moved to Illinois or if that happened afterwards, but. Hopefully it's better than their French onion dip. What are you talking about? That's the only thing that they're good for. Really? Is that the only, like, I'm trying to think because there's like. They have ice cream too, I think. No, it's hell of a good. Hell of a good makes a terrible dip. Oh yeah. That one's real bad. Yeah. I've done uh, that when you can't find Dean's. What's your, is Dean's your go-to French onion? I kind of like to make it sometimes because that can be a lot of fun. But I guess like, yeah, if I'm getting grocery store, Dean's works. I don't get French onion. I don't, I don't get it that often though. So like, Fair. I don't know. I, um, for, like my mom always bought Bernays growing up. Which oh, I don't, I don't know that one. It's like a green container and it's the best. I don't know if it's still around or like, cause I haven't seen it in a minute, but I also like, Again, I don't buy it super often, mm-hmm. but when I do, I always try and find Bernays. Okay, that's fair. That sounds good. Bring it over anytime. It. Yeah. So when Julius passed away in 1939, his son, Gary Stroh, took on the role of company president. And Gary's brother, John, would actually succeed him in 1950. So about 11 years later. Uh-huh. Sales would surge after World War II with production going from about 500,000 barrels annually in 1950 to about 2.7 million by 1956. Damn. So it's a lot more. That's, a, yeah, <laughs> that's that like five times, oh, over five times as many. That's so much. Yeah. And just a little about John too, because let's set up the working environment a little bit. He was like the type of man who was known for walking into the brewery and basically knowing everybody by their first name, 
kind of making every employee feel like they're part of the Stroh's family, like just tight knit community. Yeah. In 1964, the company made moves towards expansion by buying the Goebel Brewing Company, which was a rival from just across the street. Okay. And Stroh's decided it couldn't just compete locally anymore and needed to expand to the national landscape. Uh-huh. This was partially due to the aftermath of a 1958 statewide, so Michigan statewide strike that put a stop to Michigan beer production. Oh, damn. Yeah. So I think just being in that market and having that hit them, it was like, well, we need to be in more markets then. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. In 1967, John became Stroh's chairman, and his brother Gary's son, Peter, who had joined the company in 1951, took over the role as company president in 1968. Okay. So, again, keeping it in the family, but, like, a lot of changes, because at this point, they're over 100 years old. Yeah. Uh, Around the same time, Stroh's ended a four-decade-long relationship with a local advertising agency and looked for more national agencies to break into the larger market. By 1971, they had moved from the 15th to the 13th place nationally. And a year later, they entered the top 10 for the first time ever. And another year, and they would slide into eighth place nationally. Mm -hmm. So more changes were coming when Stroh's broke the tradition of family management, though, and started recruiting people from the outside. Bum, bum, bum. Mm -hmm. In 1978, Stroh's was distributing to 17 states producing 6.4 million barrels every year. That's a lot. Yeah. A lot of beer. And at this point, the original facility was already 128 years old and had the capacity for about 7 million barrels annually. Uh-huh. So they realized that they needed new space. Yeah. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company was then absorbed by Stroh's. And in 1981, the combined breweries ranked seventh in national sales. That's high. That's higher than I thought that would have been. Oh, just wait. Okay, okay. This merger also helped distribution expand into northeastern parts of the country, which was nice for them. And it also helped expand the company to over 40 million barrels with 400 distributors in 28 states, as well as Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and other Caribbean islands. Love that. Mm -hmm. For now. (laughs) Okay. A year later, in 1979, they purchased the Riverfront Park Davis Complex, restored it, and changed it to Stroh's River Place. Okay. Again, bigger. Yeah. And in 1980, Peter Stroh became CEO and planned to grow the company, but not slowly. Then in 1982, another expansion would happen when Stroh's bid for 67%, which would be the ruling percentage mm. of Schlitz Brewing Company. Schlitz. Schlitz. Mm-hmm. Schlitz and Stein. I have an ad on my bar that says that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, this is what, some of these brands I haven't heard of. It's yeah. about 50-50 for me on this, but that's definitely one I have. And by spring of that year, 1982, it was done and it would make Stroh's the third largest brewing company in the nation. Damn. Mm-hmm. At this point, they owned... Was seven. it all under the Stroh's name? Yes. But, okay. well, they were still brewing some of the other beers, but it was their company. Okay. You know how companies yeah, yeah, do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point, they owned seven brewing plants. And by Forbes estimation, they reached the market value of $700 million in 1988. Nice. So now this expansion might sound very lovely, but Schlitz really fought a good fight in trying to remain independent, but they had to accept this takeover when Stroh's raised its original offer from $16 to $17 per share. And the only way they could do this, though, oh, the only way that Stroh's could do this, though, is by borrowing... $500 $500 million for the acquisition. That's, then don't do it. Yes. 
You don't have the money, don't do it. Probably good business. Um, it's and it's what uh one of the Stroh's family members would later say was the quote the minnow swallowing the whale. Uh huh. So they are in a little bit of financial trouble at this point in time, yeah. trying to kind of expand too big too fast. Uh, again, they're the third largest though behind Anheuser Busch and Miller at this point. So they're doing okay, but right, they, they took out a, a bit better. more they could chew, but they're you know at least staying afloat, right? Yeah. But again, no upswing and kind of missed the market. They kind of missed the market also on the new light beer trend that uh, was taking the nation by storm. And they couldn't match the ad spending uh, of their competitors. Well, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. So they turned to pricing. So they tried to keep their prices really low. And they also introduced a 15 pack for the price of 12 huh. and a 30 pack for the price of 24. I mean, that's not a bad strategy. But then are they losing money? Yeah. It didn't work. Uh, I guess like people aren't like, you know what? Natty Light's cheap. That's what I'm buying. Mm -hmm. Oh, I get extra for the same price. I get more shitty beer that I'm just drinking because Mm -hmm. it's there. Although I do like Stroh's. Oh, no. Stroh's is like, I'm just, yeah. yeah. And I don't know when they actually changed from the original Bohemian Pilsner Lager, but obviously the recipe at this point had changed. I don't have the year for that. Yeah. But I like both versions because, uh-huh. well, we'll talk about it. But February 8th, 1985, they announced that the 135-year-old brewery on Detroit's east side Gratiot plant would be closed due to the facilities being outdated with no more room for expansion. Uh-huh. Basically, there's stuff around it. The building, they outgrew the building's purpose. I yeah. And it was imploded the following year. Oh, that's sad. Mm-hmm. And a new kid came to the beer fight, <laughs> which is literally what I wrote. <laughs> uh, Coors. Started to edge in on the market, becoming very happy, heavy competition for the for the company. Yeah. Like specifically for Stroh's. Yeah. By the end of the 80s, Coors would own the number three spot in production. Damn. And by, mm-hmm, by 1989, the company was sliding down quickly. Though they'd once treated every employee like family, they now had to lay off 300 people or about a fifth of their workforce. They had to pick their favorite family. <laughs> um. Oh, when Stroh's had taken on Schlitz, they also took on a lot of debt, yeah. as we talked about. And they were finding it really hard to compete nationally. Market shares began to go down, as did profit margins. And they went on to, Coors went on to pass Stroh's in size. And Peter Stroh had agreed to sell the company operations to Coors for $425 million. Uh-huh. But this deal would actually fall through when Coors pulled out of the deal. And there, I guess there's like a bunch of different rumors or whatever as to why. Yeah. If people want you, you can go down their rabbit hole. Yeah. I didn't get too far into it, but just something kind of happened and Coors was like, ooh, no. Yeah. I'm going to guess it's the fact that the company was probably in debt. Yeah. Do you want to spend a bunch of money to be even more in debt than the money that you spend on the company? Like, Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good <laughs> business deal. So after this, Stroh's wanted to fix the money problems through real estate. Okay. Um, development of the former headquarters, and they chose by diversifying into other beverages, taking on things like White Mountain, okay. which is a fruit-flavored bevy with 5% alcohol. Okay. So I guess kind of the first... Uh, like White Claw type thing? Yeah. I don't know. And Sundance Sparkling Water Fruit Drink. Okay. But this didn't go so well, and they would go on to actually sell the ice cream division to Dean Foods in 1988. 
okay. after losing millions more. Yeah. So they then focus on new marketing and kind of a three-pronged strategy to attack things with. Basically develop new products, brew beer under contract for other breweries, and expand overseas. Mm -hmm. So for the marketing part of this, the brand was updated with a block print. So this is when they lost the lion. Uh. And the 15 and 30 packs were no more. They said, no, we're just going to have 12 and 24 like everybody else. The prices were also raised. Mm. But this didn't go great. And the sales fell more than 40% in one year. Yeah. When you go from, we're a great value to, nope. That's generally like, people are like, well, this used to be cheap. Why is it not cheap anymore? Mm -hmm. It was the largest drop in sales in the history of beer. Damn. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was before or after Corona took out Corona. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But. I don't think Corona hurt that bad for me. I don't think so. I think people were drinking it because they thought it was funny. Yeah. And now Corona and Delta are having a party together. Yeah. Fly Delta and drink a Corona. I'm going to order a Corona next time I fly Delta. There you go. I don't know if they even have it. I don't think they do, but they no. should. They should partner. Uh, and I'm not ordering a Corona. Let's put that out there. Eh, it's okay once in a while. It's not like, a. I don't know. If it's the vibe. If it's the vibe, I'll do it. I feel like it's never the vibe for me. If it's, it's a bucket. A, okay. <laughs> do you put, do you do the lime? Oh yeah. That's the only way to drink it. That's like, I feel like the thing is you have to put a lime in it. Oh yeah. If there's no lime, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. Uh, so in 1992, Peter, and sorry, that was a bad transition. You're good. There's no lime. I'm out. So anyway. Yeah. Um, in 1992, Peter Stroh told Forbes, quote, we've been through a very difficult period. We tried to do too much. No accurate. shit. <laughs> Pretty accurate. Stated in obvious magazine. Yeah. Uh, but the three prong approach approach, the three prong strategy was actually underway too. And the new product in the new product area, they were basically looking at the explosion of beer in the nineties and people wanted like new stuff. There was like yeah. a lot of new, new and Pepsi, like, new Coke. Well, and also just like, I think breweries, like yeah. microbreweries were starting to become a thing and things like that. Obviously they would take off more later, but they were right. starting. And their strategy was to extend one or more of its existing brands. So in 1991, they introduced old Milwaukee, non-alcoholic, uh -huh. In 1993, they introduced Strove's non-alcoholic. And Old Milwaukee NA would become one of the top three NA beers. So one thing did kind of Cool. <laughs> you know that NA beer market is hot. Mm -hmm. They also did something called ice beer. And ice beer is a beer style in which the beer has undergone some degree of fractional freezing during production. Okay. And the brands generally have a higher alcohol content due to this process. And they generally have a low price compared to their alcohol content. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's similar to ice wine, actually. That's what I was thinking, too. But ice wine, I think it's that the grapes are actually frozen or something like that. The water from the grapes, when it, like, basically there's less water. Yeah. Because it's frozen. And so, like, it's sweeter because, like, the water, like. Okay. Like, there's so much sugar and so much water in a grape. So, when you take out the water, there's just a. Sugar. Higher concentration yeah. of sugar comparatively. Yeah, I can't drink ice wine. I tried once. It was not for me. I liked it when I had it, but that was like, I was like 22. So I wonder if I would like it still. Because I fair. feel like that's when I was like drinking like barefoot Moscato still. Yeah. <laughs> Which like no shade to barefoot Moscato. That's your jam. It's just I can't do it anymore. Which is fair too. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So 
we're around 1994 or so right now. And another hot item that they also did in the mid 90s was prepackaged, quote unquote, draft beer, because draft beer had also become a big thing. Uh-huh. And this is when they developed Stroh's Draft Light and Old Milwaukee Genuine Draft and Schlitz Genuine Draft. Okay. So basically, I don't know what the difference is, though, when you're packed, because the whole idea of draft is right. like it comes out of the thing. But like, I know it's Miller Genuine Draft, put, like MGD. Do you think they put it in a keg and then put it in a can from the keg? Maybe. And they just like dispense it into a cup and then pour that cup into a can and then the can seal it. Yes. All of that for that. Yes. Yep. That's what, we're, that's what it is. But it is interesting because I've never thought about that before because I've heard of things in yeah, cans when you were being saying draft that, and like, like, but wait. That doesn't make sense. Right. No, I like literally as you were saying it, I'm like, I have seen the word draft on cans before and mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. I think it's supposed to make it sound like more crafty, but not necessarily a craft beer. It sounds like craft. So you think craft, but it's just mm-hmm. draft. But I feel like it's also like usually because it's like, well, like I said, like MGD, like Miller, which is like, you know, like a a man's beer or whatever, you know, like yeah. a working man's beer or whatever. So it's confusing because I feel like they don't, want to market necessarily to like snooty drinkers yeah maybe it's like old school maybe it kind of feels like, old i don't know maybe it's just like the imagine you're at the beer even though you're in your parka lounger exactly yeah uh so they also focus on specialty beers a little too as mentioned that was on the yeah. rise and the 90s brought a slew of microbreweries into the scene and craft beers. And that's what people wanted. So national companies like Stroh's didn't want to change their flagship beer, but started to buy up microbreweries producing some of these specialty beers. So Stroh's made some purchases. That seems like a good choice for them, given their yeah. history. They bought Augsburger in 1989 and over the next few years introduced both specialty and seasonal beers under this name. The international market was the third area of focus. And in 1986, they had created Stroh International and put their focus on Canada, India, Japan, Mexico, and Russia. Okay. And from the years 1982 to 95, their international sales actually grew each year by at least 50%. Oh, nice. By 94, they had entered a licensing agreement with Rajasthan Breweries Limited, Uh which I probably butchered that name, but it's R-A-J-A-S-T-H-A-N. And this would be for the market in India. Uh, and this was, I believe, the first canned beer to be sold in India. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And a year later, they had an agreement with Sapporo uh-huh. in Tokyo. Yes. And Sapporo began distributing Stroh's nationwide in Japan. Love that. Mm-hmm. I definitely heard of Sapporo. Yes. It's actually a city, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I think. I mean, I don't know why that makes sense either, but yeah, that, that seems feasible. <laughs> Those are facts that could be true. <laughs> We'll see, or yeah. we won't. Yeah. Um, by 1995, 10% of all sales were actually international. Damn. Mm-hmm. That same year, William Henry took over Peter Stroh's CEO position and was the first non-Stroh to hold the position. Probably for a good choice. It mm-hmm. seems like the last Stroh didn't do so great. And a year later, they would go on to acquire the G. Heilman Hel- Hel- Brewery. Okay. G. Heilman? H E, it, yeah, sure. Heilman, yeah, it's very long, uh, and that was in Wisconsin. They acquired it for about two hundred ninety million dollars, but yet again, That's so much. This would be borrowed money. Why? I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, I don't have an MBA, but this seems like a bad choice. Mm-hmm. 
And it would bring, at this point, it would bring the total to about 30 different brands that the company had, but no more income flow. Yeah. Because also, too, they were kind of picking up these brands that weren't necessarily flourishing. Right. So. Because like, if a brand's crushing it, I'm doubting they're willing to sell to you. And if they are, it's going to be for buku bucks. Mm-hmm. In fact, one market analyst actually described the takeover as, quote, two sick chickens. They were both declining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sick chickens. What a, what a, oh. I never want to be referred to as a sick chicken. Me neither. That makes me sad. Just a spring chicken. <laughs> oh, so young. Oh. Yeah. So unfortunately, like I said, the company borrowed a lot of money to grow. And the market shares, or while the market shares were actually up, the cash flow was not. Right. You own half the market because you bought half the market. It doesn't yeah. mean it's profitable. Exactly. So it was time to sell some stuff. And they sold Stro Canada in 1999 to the Salman Breweries, a division of Sapporo. Okay. They experienced the steepest decline in American brewing history. As mentioned, stocks fell, company had fallen into extreme debt, and they chose to sell their label rather than fall into bankruptcy. Fair. So by 1998, um, a cousin, I don't know how they're all related. 1998, another John Stroh. John Stroh III had taken charge at Stroh Company and turned to contract brewing for other labels, including Sam Adams. So they were producing for Sam Adams uh-huh. just to kind of yeah, keep some the lights money. on. Yeah. But this didn't really work. And so they actually ended up going on and losing a, a similar contract with Pabst. Uh-huh. And it just, it wasn't looking good, yeah. we'll say. Uh, sometime in the 90s, early 2000s, the company tried investing more into real estate and then actually biotech. Okay. Uh, specifically, hemoglobin products for the treatment of septic shock that made it into phase three trials in 2000. Strohs? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I do have a side trip for us at the end of this, just so you know, too. Just to okay. a little bit about other family members. I'll grab my but, backpack. Yes. Uh, by 19, I wrote 199. By sometime in the late 90s, there was <laughs> concern about if the company could even make the interest payments on the debt that they had incurred. Yikes. Yeah. So February 8th, 1999 was when the official announcement was made that the 149-year-old brewery was selling its labels to Paps Brewing Company and Miller Brewing Company. John Stroh III was company president at the time, and chief, as well as chief executive. And he said, quote, Emotionally, it was an extremely difficult one to make knowing that it would impact our loyal employees and recognizing that it would mean the end to our family's centuries-old brewing tradition that had become, in essence, an important part of our identity. That is sad. Yeah. And unfortunately, it would result in basically over a $700 million loss to the family. Damn. Uh, At this point, too, I I didn't write this part down, but at this point, too, roughly about 30 members of the show's family were pretty much living off of Stroh's. Yeah. Um, many of them living like Gross Point and things like that with full families of their own. Yeah. Um, I think the 30 includes like... Children and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But still like 30 people. Yeah. Uh, bringing in at least a household income of about $400,000 a year. Yeah. Or so roughly from that. So as of 2014, the last remaining family entity owned... Uh, a half office, empty office building in Detroit. And that was basically all they had to their family name. Damn. Miller would buy up a few labels and Paps went on to buy the rest for $350, mil- $350 million. Uh-huh. 
250 million or 250 of that was used to pay the debt uh-huh. from the previous Heilman, Heilman purchase. And the remaining 200 million was transferred to a fund to pay employee pension liabilities. And whatever remained after that went into a fund for the family that was be dry by 2008. And then the ice dropped. <laughs> Literally. After 2000, the Strobe brand was discontinued and some of their other labels were purchased by other breweries. Not so, I mean, it is still created. Yeah. Paps would keep many of the labels such as Stroh's, Lone Star, Colt 45 Malt Liquor, mm-hmm. Old Milwaukee, Old Style, and Miller would keep Mickey's Malt Liquor and Henry Weinhards. Okay. But in August of 2016, Paps partnered with Detroit Corktown's Brew Detroit, which we're drinking something from right now, oh. to start brewing pat- uh, batches of Stroh's Bohemian-style Pilsner. Word. So they went back to the original recipe that yeah, you know Bernard had brought over from bohemia and the 1850 recipe Uh and this was the first batch was shipped to detroit bars and stores on august 22nd of that year with launch events across the city on the 26th and again that was 2016 i actually do remember this Uh happening i've had the stroh's bohemian pilsner uh and many uh, bars around detroit just because it was like kind of fun like ooh, i'm drinking this real old beer (laughs) Recipe. I did that. I think I did that at New Way In, which like shout out New Way In episode nine. I think. Oh, you got a draft. You didn't get a I think bottle. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, they do make this in the bottle too, but it's like a di- the bottle looks different than yeah. like you no, know, it's definitely draft. Bottle. Um. Yeah, and actually the the restaurant I used to work at, we had it for a while too on draft there and stuff. Oh. Uh-huh. And in on May fourth of two thousand eighteen, so a few years ago, Stroh's released its Perseverance IPA, a Michigan exclusive. Ooh. Yeah. So there is kind of this at least knowledge base about like Yeah. At least like the recipe kinda, re- like persisted. The recipe persisted. And I think that like honestly, Paps did a kind of good job in realizing that like people like that little throwback or shout back. Yeah. And I know some people who like actually the Bohemian Pilsner better and some people like the other, the other yeah. shows better. It it doesn't matter. But like right. it's it was at least it's fun. nice to see it's still around. Yeah, and then they kind of do, you know, a nice job with this. Yeah. And um, we're going to go back, though. And I, I, I'm getting a book. I'm going to go more into this someday in uh, a future episode because I couldn't help it. But a little bit about the family members because uh, we didn't go too much into them. Yeah. I did find one article that talked a little bit about some of the children of some of the people kind of like living off oh, this yeah. money. And some of them were the people who are CEO and things like that, too. Yeah. And this would... This is all family members from like the 80s into the 90s. Yeah. So, I'm sure they were really well behaved and nothing tragic happened. No, not at all. Uh, there was actually one of the children of somebody. His name is Greg Stroh. He's now in his early 50s. And he actually would go on to co-found three beverage companies. Okay. One of which was Izzy Soda. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I heard of her. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. And then there was also Frances Stroh. She was kicked out of boarding school at one point at Taft after she was caught drinking. She would, however, go on to earn a Fulbright scholarship to study art in London and eventually become an artist. Oh, fun. And she's also, she's a writer now. And she and her siblings each inherited $400,000 from a trust when her father passed. Because again, the family lost like millions upon millions upon millions. Uh, It's estimated at like $9 billion in today's dollars, essentially. Yeah. So she would go on to write a book called, quote, called, quote, (laughs) 
I saw a quote. Like, she would go on to write a book called Beer Money, A Memoir of Privilege and Loss. That sounds absolutely fascinating. It it's being sent to me right now. <laughs> Love it. Yes. So, and she said, quote, there was a resistance in the family to change our lifestyle. The company was paying dividends out of principle. My father continued to spend at the same rate, which isn't unusual for someone who gets a check that size every three months. Even though family members had been warned about it, the dawning of that reality really hit home when the letter from the board of directors arrived. The Hemingway quote from The Sun Also Rises was perfect. How did you go bankrupt? Gradually and then suddenly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her three, three brothers also kicked out of different prep schools. Unfortunately, one of them, Charlie, barely avoided a prison sentence for dealing cocaine in college in the early 80s. His parents forced him into the Marines after that. But in 2003, at the age of 43, he fell to his death from a 10-story, 10th floor hotel balcony in Texas when the sheets that he had tied together gave way. Why? What? I don't even, nobody knows basically. Why he was climbing down these sheets, but he did. There was a report that he had called the desk to report a robbery and some other nonsensical things. Okay, he was tripping. Yeah, on something. Yeah, it's it's that's a that's yeah. It's a very rough tragedy. Yeah, it's it's just awful. Uh, Nick Stro, fourth generation member and freelance journalist in Africa, was bludgeoned to death by Ugandan troops in 1971 after he was investigating reports of an army massacre there. Damn. Uh, Peter's brother, Gary Stroh Jr., he was the one who ran the ice cream division eventually. Uh-huh. He fell off a horse on his farm in 1982 and became a quadriplegic at that time. Damn. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't fuck with horses. Mm-hmm. I'll pet them, but I'm not going to get on them. I, I went to, I, I've I, ridden horses before. I went to horse camp. Love um, that. I also got scared, though. I don't know. Scary. It's just like... I, I'm not a horse hoe. I'm I not love horses, now, but I would but... actually still ride a horse in the right situation, but I'm not going to seek it out. Same. Yeah. We're going to leave this story with one more quote from Francis Stroh. We made these brands that were so emblematic of the American dream itself. The collapse of these brands operated as a metaphor of what happened to this country. I had this impulse to get to the truth of what happened to my family and thought, if I can do that, I can get the truth of what happened to America. Okay. And that's in reference to her book, which is interesting. I actually like spent a lot of time thinking about this because I was like, okay, so she's kind of talking about like, is she talking, is she trying to reference like the collapse of capitalism or is she trying to talk about like the nature, like the nature essentially kind of being greedy? I kind of like what I kind of take it as Mm -hmm. is like kind of like the death of the American dream because nobody's like really like into that anymore. Yeah. Nobody's really like, thinking, oh, I'm going to come to America. Maybe maybe people outside the country are, but like, I feel like a lot of us here kind of realize, like, oh, that's bullshit. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Not in this country. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, not like, all the time. we're I mean, definitely yeah. in like late stage capitalism. Like, yeah. we're at, it, it, it's been a tipping point or whatever. And yeah. I kind of feel like that's kind of what happened to this company, though, too, of like, okay, well, we, we don't just want to be local. We want to do this like national thing and we want to take over it all. Yeah. And so they kept, finding all these like other sinking ships essentially and then yeah. taking those on and then sinking further. But they were already big enough that it took them a very long time, I think, to realize how far they, their ship had yeah. sunk. And it really did take a very large company. I don't know where Paps was in the market at the time of that purchase. I don't know where they ranked, but I'm sure they were top four 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's it perhaps is. Yeah. I don't know when they snuck into the top five, but they did at some point. Oh yeah. And clearly, I think they also three hundred fifty million is a lot, but also I don't. It doesn't sound like that much in the grand scheme of large yeah. scale businesses. But yeah, so I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thing and it made me think a little bit. And yeah, I know for sure. I, like I said, I ordered her book. <laughs> I can't wait for you to get it. Yeah. It, the article I read, oh, which I should mention my sources, but the article I was reading about her book was very interesting. And my sources are DetroitHistorical.org, Forbes.com, an article called How to Blow $9 Million, The Fallen Stro Family by Carrie A. Dolan from July of 2014. And marketwatch.com, the story, How to Lose a Billion Dollars by Quentin Fotrell, April 5th, 2017. And also an article. Shit, I forgot to write the last one down. And also an article about her book. Okay. <laughs> so it was mostly information like yeah. from her book. Yeah. And that is the roller coaster that was the. Stroh's um, empire. Yeah. That's like so interesting because like obviously I'd heard the name Stroh's growing up a lot. Like my Uncle Ray loves Stroh's. Um, but other than that I didn't really know much about them. And I, I've heard of Old Milwaukee too. I didn't know that was a Stroh's brand. That's fun. I didn't either. I heard of it too. For some reason I, I you know what? I did know that it was a PBR brand. Oh, uh, okay. I think because I think PBR is also out of Milwaukee. So sure. maybe I made that association. I feel like they are because I think that that's where Wayne's World took that. place. And yeah. I'm pretty sure Wayne's World had a PBR relationship. I've never seen Wayne's World, but I did write a trivia question <sighs> where I was like doing vague movie plots. We have to watch both Wayne's World 1 and 2. I almost like 2 better. Okay. I described it in vague terms though. A, a long SNL sketch with bad hair. I, I, it's, they were good though. Oh I mean, no, I bet they were good. Yeah. I've just never seen them. Um, in fact, roommate Lisa uh-huh. owns two at least, I think. Okay. DVD. I'm sure they're easy to find, but still. Yeah. There's something exciting about a DVD sometimes. Yes. Oh, totally. Hard copy. You gotta have some hard copies <laughs> every once in a while. Uh, but no, I do love the Wayne's World movies. Okay. We'll mm-hmm. put it on the movie list. Like, unfortunately, it's one of the ones that I like would quote while watching and I will I will try yeah. my best not to but I apologize in advance do it girl I don't care okay good we watched um don't tell mom the babysitter's dead recently and that was a lot of oh another gem that I absolutely adore and love and will I'm right on top of it time. Rose <laughs> I started saying that now good and it's a great dishes quote. are done man man <laughs> I honestly almost went back and rewatched it but I haven't yet it's it's an it's easy a, one to rewatch. One. Yeah, it's a good one. It's it's the you know one thing like improv and all that can hit, we talk about like character development like all the freaking oh, time. Oh yeah, the the character development that is just so good because you're literally watching multiple characters develop similarly but like in their own way. Yeah, and I think they do a really good job with that. And I love Christina Applegate, and also oh, I like, my gosh, literally yes. didn't know what the movie. I, like, when I heard the title, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, I thought it was just like an overnight babysitter thing. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize it was like... Like a babysitter romp. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. But no, it was a long haul and I was here for it. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Too. That party at the end. Oh, yeah. Clown dog or whatever. Right. Oh, 
comes in. Oh, and just when Christina Applegate goes, I wasn't ready for any of this. And I'm like, oh, honey, none of us were. No. But you're 17, so especially not you. She also does. the clothes. Oh, Can we talk fashion. about the fashion in that movie? I so good. want every outfit that she wears with the exception of like one hat. Yeah. And that's it. Everything else. They all say something hats. They were. They were. There was just one I was still. Said something you didn't like. Yeah. It went, I needed that one hat to shut up. Yeah. That's yeah, it. exactly. Everything else is a go, but that one hat, just zip your lips, please. It's not the move. Yeah. But, you know, it is the move. Hopefully a game. Yes. Yay. I got some two truths in the live for Yay. you. Uh, bet you can't guess where I got it from. Um, The moon. Yes. <laughs> So it's actually from Mental Flaws. Oh, okay. And it's about 30 Rock. Oh, fantastic. Hopefully you haven't read this article. I haven't, but I do love that show. Okay. But it's also been a second since I watched it, so. Well, the reason I, like, thought about it is because I saw that it's coming back to Netflix soon. Because it left in 2017, and now it's coming back apparently soon. Thank God, because I, I'm due for a rewatch. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's on Peacock. It might be on Peacock, too. I don't know. It but, probably is. Yeah. I, like... It's one of those shows I always think to go back and rewatch, but I haven't yet. Oh, I've rewatched it. Like, I've, I've definitely seen it multiple times through, but just like, it's one mm-hmm. that like I thought during quarantine, like I should rewatch that. Never did. Okay. I feel like I've rewatched it since 2017, so it must be on Peacock. Okay. Or I think it's on Hulu too. So it must be on Hulu. Okay. <laughs> but here are your facts. Yes. Fact number one. Okay. When they were writing season three, they considered putting Jack and Liz together. Fact number two. The show was originally supposed to be about a news show, not sketch comedy. Fact number three, John Hamm auditioned for the role of Jack. These are evil. I know. <laughs> um, okay. I knew you were a fan, so I had to go ham. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with number one being the lie. That is. That's true. Like the article specifically was like, um... They struggled to create the relationship between the two, but romance was never an option. Yeah, I kind of, I feel like I've heard that or read that. And that was kind of the joke is that they made it seem like it yeah. was. But then like, there's like that work, one episode. Work where, husband and wife, I feel like. Yes. And there is that one episode where his ex-wife comes back. Yeah. And like, she gets like dolled up to like go to the big gala with him or whatever. And they have the, um, the box snapping moment from Pretty Woman. Yeah. And like, so it's like all flirty, but then like. So they try to make it look like there could be a thing between them. Yes. I feel like there is a moment in that where like, that's the joke. You know, you, yeah. you know, that's the oh, joke. Yeah. And it's just beautiful and wonderful. And they're like, yeah, we're never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad they didn't. Another oh, one too. that I like, another fact that was on this list that I was like, so happy they didn't is like, they really wanted to avoid ending the series with her wedding. That's why she got married halfway through season seven. Oh, that's smart. Because I, they, didn't I, want, they didn't want all of her time to accumulate in a wedding. Yeah, no, I hate that. There's yeah. actually, there's other shows that have um, specifically also avoided like ending on weddings because that's not what life is all about. Yeah. That's like one event, but the wedding's not the important thing. It's right. The other bits. But the other two are true. Um, the the John Hamm one really surprised me. I cannot imagine him playing kind of. I feel like he went out for a lot of roles, though. Yeah. He did end up playing Liz's boyfriend for a couple episodes. Oh, I remember. Yeah. He was because he was the hair. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) 
Okay. I think I know or remember more of 30 Rock than I gave myself original credit for. Yes. Do you know who was originally supposed to play Jenna? No. Rachel Dratch. Oh, interesting. There's actually a pilot, an unaired pilot she goes, where she plays. Really? Where she plays Jenna. She goes on to play that cat lady, though. She plays so many things. She's also the blue guy. She also oh, yeah. plays. She plays so many. She's so like, good. Random, oh, I, love I her. enjoy her so much. Also, I, the fact um, Tracy Morgan with like Grizz and .com, mm-hmm. like Grizz was one of his friends in real life and .com was his former manager. So that was kind of just like their actual relationship. Oh, I love that. Right? Yeah. They're uh, some of the best characters too because they have like, yeah. they're always the smartest people. Yeah. Like they're always the ones who like get why people are the way they are. Yeah. And they have those moments of like just ingenious like clarity of yep. the situation where it's like, oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Grizzin.com. Yeah. We need you. Apparently, they also almost had Jenna and Pete date. I can see it, but it, but it would have been weird. I'm okay without it. Same. I think it ended up very, very appropriate. Did you um know that Tina Fey's husband did the music for the show? No. That's yeah. lovely. Um, I think that's kind of... Oprah guest starred. She accused uh, Faye of working too hard. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Which I That's love. a good That's episode a that she's on that though, too. I almost had that fun fact be that Oprah was never there. It's like my favorite thing. And it's like some teenage girl or whatever. The right. Time. She was just like rolling on something like some like anti-anxiety or that she mixed with alcohol or yeah. something. And she says, oh, how does she? She says Oprah very funny in the episode, too. Oprah, when, something like that. Well, she does that. But when she's like under the influence, the way that she says Oh, she says like Oplol or something like that. Yes. <laughs> but it, oh, that show is a gem. It really is. If you haven't seen it, and you're looking for a show, highly recommend. Yeah. It still holds up pretty well. Oh, for sure. Like so another one effect was uh, the show averages 10 jokes a minute. Wow. Yeah. So if you need a laugh. Yeah. 10 a minute. And they're so good. Well, they all land, but well, yeah, I think that. I think that wraps us then. I feel wrapped like an episode of The Girly Show. Yes. I was literally about to say I feel wrapped like a 30 Rock Live show. Oh, I forgot about that too. There were two of them. They were good. Yeah. Yeah. But if you want to find us on our social media, it's at Detroit Strange on Instagram and Twitter. Detroit Strange on Facebook. Detroit Strange at gmail.com is our email address. Yeah, and also if you want to support the show, we yes. always welcome a pod- Apple Podcast review. Five yes. stars would be fantastic. Leave us a review. We might read it here because that would be a lot of fun. We love reading stuff. Yeah. And also, as mentioned up front, there there is our Patreon, Detroit Strange. We've also got our Threadless shop. There's some stuff on there. Yes. If there's anything you'd like to see, let us know. Right. And, uh, you know, send us stuff. We love it. Yeah. But I think. Until next time. Stay strange. strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.